Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I'm joined with Valerie Lemieux. Valerie, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, yes. Thank you so much for having me. Um, my name is Valerie Lemieux, and I led a performance analytics team at IBM, uh, where I worked with Alex, and now I am the director of performance marketing analytics at CBS Health. Incredible. So speaking of being a director, you are one of the youngest directors ever. How did you do it? Any advice to the little girls and boys out there who dream about making a name for themselves? So one, thank you. That That's very nice of you to say. Um, you know, I'd say there are probably three major things that have helped me. Um, number one is, is having a team and, and a good team. Two is always finding ways to be essential. And then three is actually learning how to fail. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. But, but to start, your team is going to be your most important asset. And your job as a leader is, is not necessarily to lead a project, but it's to build these individuals. So the first thing I do when somebody joins my team um, is I try to get an understanding of where they want to go. Do they also want to lead? Do they want to become a data scientist? Do they want to be a CMO? And you have to pay attention to what they want out of their career. And then it's your responsibility as a leader to make sure you're taking the necessary steps to get them closer. So, you know, you're not going to build a team by giving them a list of tasks to accomplish. You build a team by inspiring thoughtfulness and you have to treat your team as they're your thought partners and make sure they're a part of the decisions you're making. You pay attention when they're doing work. You pay attention when they're presenting and you have to actively, actively give your team feedback. It's really important. And over time, your team takes on more decisions and, and you trust them to do that. Um, and then you take on more work. So if you think about it, right, you only have about 24 hours in a day. Um, it's the same amount of time that Michelle Obama has. It's the same amount of time that Elon Musk has. Whoever it is you look up to, you have the same amount of time in your day. And having one additional person on your team doubles the time in your day. So you have to make sure that you're investing in your team's growth just as much as your own. The second thing you have to do is you have to figure out how to make yourself essential. When you're given a task, you have to see the potential beyond the task you're given. And you have to treat every single task that you're given as an opportunity to deliver value. And I'll explain to you what I mean by that. There was a time when I was asked to build a dashboard for a sales pipeline initiative. And um, I noticed right, that the uh, project wouldn't be successful if the if it wasn't used, if the data wasn't used and the CMOs weren't actually actively using, uh, checking their data and optimizing it. So what I did was I actually set up an enablement hub um, and then I started building consumable packages and um, to make sure that, that people could actually understand how the information broke down. I actually set up meetings with each of the individual CMOs to make sure they understood what I was building and to collect feedback so that I could build a better tool. And then all of a sudden, what happened was my job went from building a dashboard for just one project to me advising on strategy and me working directly with CMOs on some of the work. You know, and, and this kind of concept can be applied anywhere. It's, it's not just a dashboard building, but you know, imagine, right, if you, for example, were asked to create a dictionary of definitions, right? So maybe it's an enablement project that you have. And um, you might think of it as, oh, this is busy work. I have to type up some definitions. I have to ask some people um, what they, you know, for, for the terms that they use in their different dashboards, whatever it is that you're doing. But what if you looked at it instead as how do I make the best dictionary I possibly could make? And 
what if I added an index based on category? What if I built it in Tableau and made it searchable? Um, what if you created links within your dictionary so that people could actually go and, and actually see where the, the, the terms are used? You know, there's a lot more you can do. So you have to see that potential and, and you have to go get that, that value and you have to deliver it to the best of your ability. The last thing I'll talk about is failure. When you're starting a new project, there are times when you will fail. And when you lead for the first time, there are times when you're going to fail, you might let your team down. Um, when you're starting a new relationship with someone, you're going to do something to, to fail at some point. Um, and, and how you approach that failure is going to be key to your success. Um, one thing you, you might hear often, actually, if you work, work at IBM, is this saying from, it's actually from Ginny Rometty. Um, and what she always says is growth and comfort don't coexist and, and you have to find this comfort in being uncomfortable. Um, and you know what I find really interesting is I don't think all failure has to feel bad. Um, and it's actually in our nature to, to, to overcome it and to enjoy it, right? So if you think about video games, it's the classic example of this, right? Is, you know, if you were to pick up a video game and beat it on the first try, you know, what would you do next? Would you, I mean, maybe you would pick it up as your career, right? And maybe you'd make money off of it um, if that's an option. But more often than not, that's not an option. You'd probably get bored and do, do something else. Um, there's a certain level of excitement that can come from, from overcoming failure and to overcome something that's difficult. So you have to find that excitement and you have to bring it to your career and figure out if I fail, what am I going to do differently? How am I going to optimize this? What am I going to learn? And you have to make that, a core part of, of what you're looking for and what you're doing. Wow. I can, I can already tell there's a lot in what you just said that is relatable to a lot of people. It was bringing up a lot of memories for myself, thinking about, um, for example, the, the way that you talked about expanding on the work that you're given. This is one of the the similar, the, this is the one of the pieces of wisdom that I've actually heard talking to various mentors throughout the years it is the formula in moving up is, you know, if you believe that you should be promoted, if you believe you should be a leader and you believe you are being given work that is quote unquote beneath what you're capable of, then you should be able to do that work so well that they can't ignore you, that they say, well, we must give them more work because they did it so well. And if you, and if you think you're above it and you do, and you, and you, you're almost offended that this it's too basic and you don't do a great job, it's not going to work. You're, you're not going to be able to get to that next level until you are willing to grind at the bottom and do it such an, an excellent job. So I really love that you said that. You, you put it in a really great way. Next, next question. When you talked about building a team and providing feedback, how do you do that as a young leader? especially if you're leading people with different backgrounds from your own? As a young leader, um, you know, it's, it's very easy to think about the fact that a lot of people you're working with and might work for you might have more experience. Um, and a lot of the times maybe your peers might have a lot of experience that you don't have. And um, what you might start to feel, and, and I felt multiple times, is this thing called imposter syndrome. It's a very common thing for, for women especially to feel. And the thing that I'd say is, as a young leader, you have to be confident. You have to. And when I say confidence, um, I don't mean bossing people around. I don't mean having all of the answers, because guess what? You won't have all the answers, even if you are seasoned. 
what I mean by confidence is you have to be confident in what you know, and you also have to be confident in what you don't know. Um, and you have to give people the room to help fill in some of those gaps. That's what a good leader does, is you have to recognize a good idea. You have to recognize something you don't know, um, and you have to, to, to fill in all of those, all of those positions. When, when you're a young leader, you also have to kind of bring this level of, of empathy and, and humility to the team. And that, those are two key qualities that you have to bring. You know, when I worked at IBM, um, all of the leaders, especially the young leaders, read this book called Radical Candor. It's by Kim Scott. It's a fantastic read. And the premise is this idea of, you know, if you're going to give constructive feedback, there's kind of this two by two. And one of the axes is how much you personally care about the individual. And then the other axis is, is how much you might, might challenge them. And you can imagine, right, if you don't care about an individual personally and you challenge them directly, how you could create a very hostile work environment uh, for, for not just the person, but for those around you. On the other side of things, if you care very, really deeply about someone, you really care about them um, and you never challenge them, then you start to enter this category of what they call ruinous empathy. Um, caring so much that you don't actually help them progress. So what you have to find is, is this ideal spot for feedback called what they call radical candor in this book. Um, and it's when you can give feedback to your team and they understand that you want them to get better. This is why it's important to know what their goals are and what they're trying to work towards um, and that you're not just berating them because they did something wrong. You know, it, it sounds easy in principle, and I'll give you an example of, of what I mean by radical candor, is um, you have to find out why they're doing the thing that they're doing. So, so for example, one time early on, uh, my team lead told me after a meeting, he said, um, you talk too much during meetings. Um, and those of you have, that have worked with me know that he was right. I talk a lot during, <laughs> during meetings. Um, so he wasn't wrong and, and it was valid feedback. But as a new hire, I was like, you know, what does that mean? Uh, sometimes he talks the entire meeting. So how do I time box my time and what's my time versus somebody else's time? I don't, I don't know. Um, and what he could have said was something like, you know, I can see you really want to be a part of the discussions. Uh, and it's a great quality to have. But when it comes to speaking up, maybe you need to figure out, you know, maybe when it comes to speaking up, uh, you need to prioritize other people's time. And that means that you have to make sure you're adding value. And you know, the more you learn, the more value you'll add. And listening might be a great way for you to learn and in turn add value. And I want you to add more value. So let's work together. Um, so all of a sudden, right, this feedback is now much more applicable. And I understand, oh, this is what I need to be doing. Um, and if you would have framed it that way, I probably would have taken the feedback and grown a little bit. Um, instead, what I did was I focused on saying what I had to say faster because I wanted to make sure I wasn't taking up too much time. So <laughs> Um, so you have to figure out the right way to approach the feedback so that it's constructive. I think imposter syndrome is less of a syndrome that I think the name is very misleading. Um, I, I, to me, because I've, I've asked executives about imposter syndrome, um, and I'm sure you have too. I, you know, this is something that if you have a mentor, you're going to talk to them about, hey, I don't feel right in this role or, hey, I'm nervous right now. And these can all be described as a sort of imposter syndrome. And to me, this is anxiety. It's, it's professional anxiety. And if you try to reframe it in a way that this is solvable, like I can prove to myself that I belong here, 
then that can really help. I'm curious, how have you in your personal life overcome these feelings of anxiety and imposter syndrome? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I, I do think that it never truly fully goes away, um, especially if you move up quickly. Uh, I think the important thing is, again, just staying grounded in what you know and having confidence in what you know. Um, there's a reason you're in the position you're in, right? Whether you passed the interview, whether you accomplished a project, and maybe the new project you have is out of scope of, of what something you've done before. Um, but there's a set of skills that you bring to the table and you have to, you have to keep reminding yourself of what those are. Um, there was a time in my career where I was leading, this is the big sales pipeline initiative. Um, and it was a SaaS project, software as a service. And I, um, I was, I was put in this position because it was a very busy time of the year and I actually didn't have very much on my plate at the time. So I was given this, this big project and it wasn't big when it started, but it ended up being, being a massive project. And I pulled my vice president aside, um, who I was even lucky to be meeting with. And I told him, I said, you know what? I just found out how SaaS businesses are run. I Googled it. I don't really understand a lot of the terms that are being said in these meetings. And, um, and I'm, I feel like I'm maybe not cut out for this job. And I wouldn't be offended if you gave it to somebody else instead. And he looked at me and he said, I did, you're not on this project because you know how to run a SaaS business. You're on this project because I've seen your ability to learn and apply your learnings to what you're doing. And so I'm not surprised that you don't know how to run a SaaS business. But what you're going to do is you're going to learn and you're going to figure out how to, how to make this grow. And we were actually able to turn around the SaaS business within six weeks um, because, of, because of the analytics we did. So, um, so that, that's what I would say is confidence in what you know and confidence in what you don't know. I don't know how to run a SaaS business, but I know how to do analytics. So how am I going to bring that to the SaaS business? What am I going to learn and how do I make it grow? Wow. There's a difference between the value that you think you have and the value that leadership sees in you. And oftentimes they are, one is a, in, ahead of the other. In other words, you want to think that you have all this value because you're being selected for this or that, but um, actually that is your chance to prove that you have that value. Um, and so that's, I think, really powerful to remember. So yes, I completely agree with you. And I think there's also sometimes when maybe your leadership won't see the full value of what you're doing, or maybe they're not paying attention, or maybe they have other priorities and that's okay. This is why it becomes very important for you to figure out how to deliver value beyond the potential of the task you're given. And there was a time, this is an example um, of a time when I was leading this, this project and this was after this big initiative that had happened and I was applying analytics to some of the marketing campaigns and I was figuring out a new way to do, and it was very much a pilot program, new way to do marketing uh, powered by analytics and we were partnering directly with some of the marketing teams um, and it was, it was small in scope. And so it didn't have that much attention. It wasn't, you know, and, it, and definitely the leadership was checking in every now and then, but there came a time when I thought, and I realized this project is really good. And I think, I think if it's scaled, it could really deliver value. So I set up a retrospective. I brought the marketing teams and they were the ones presenting. I wasn't the one presenting. And I called my CMO and I said, I think there's a really good you know, project here and I think you should come in and see it and come join my retrospective. And she said, you know, I'm, I'm very busy. Um, I'll see if I can come. And she said, I can come for the first 15 minutes and I would love to see what you've been up to. 
Um, and she joined and she ended up staying for the full hour instead of just the first 15 minutes. And she said, this is how I think marketing should be run. And what I learned from that is you have to kind of go out and see, seek those opportunities. You have to deliver the value and you have to go look for opportunities for yourself sometimes. Um, and what that led to is, is, is me, um, being put in charge of my own marketing campaign, um, you know, in, in, in later years. And so, uh, it's always important to make sure that you're also keeping tabs on your own value and you're making sure that when you're when you do something that you think is fantastic that you make you make it known that you've done this thing yeah be be so great they can't ignore you exactly i love that so i was looking on the fortune 500 list to see these two companies that you just moved between it turns out you moved from number 42 on the fortune 500 list to number four do you think that the overall performance marketing strategy differs between these companies? There's a lot of, of differences between the two companies and uh, primarily the industries. One is in healthcare, the other is in technology. So, you know, in healthcare, we're definitely focused on making people healthier. Uh, and that's kind of at the forefront of our minds all the time. Um, in technology, we want to make sure that we're getting the technologies in the hands of the people that need it most. One is more B2C and, and the other is primarily B2B. So naturally, there will be a lot of differences um, in those ways. I'd say that, that, that the most important similarity, though, between the two is the maniacal focus on knowing your audience. And one thing that I think is important to remember is as a marketer, right, your job is not necessarily to send emails. It's not to run paid media. It's not even to make a web page. Your, your job as a marketer is to understand your audience and then create a relationship with that audience. And you might do this through emailing them. You might do it through building a website. But if you email the same person 50 times in one day, whether it's through your, your company or if you personally emailed somebody 50 times in one day, you'd probably ruin a relationship. Um, so the fundamental question between the two companies of performance marketing is how close can you get to an understanding of your audience anything from how they consume information to what they care about to um, how you might help solve their needs. Um, and then what is your plan to build that relationship? And then, of course, over the past hundred years, right, um, access to data and information about audiences has significantly evolved, which makes it a lot easier to, um, to understand them. Now there's stuff like AI, there's vector modeling, there's NLP, there's automated platforms that can, you know, uh, process large amounts of information um, at scale. And then there's even unstructured data now that we can read. Um, again, that's back to AI. There's also new, new restrictions in place around privacy, right? And there's, um, you know, stuff like GDPR, Privacy Act, HIPAA, and now CCPA in California. There's, you know, health privacy. So, so how these two companies execute, you know, significantly depends on how, um, how they approach um, the data and the information they have about individuals, and then, of course, um, the mechanisms by which they can execute at scale. The other side of performance um, is their ability to understand how tactics we execute impact the outcomes or the building of that relationship. One really good example of this is the history of Listerine, um, which I know sounds kind of weird, but um, if you think back to the 1920s, uh, over 100 years ago at this point, um, there wasn't really a market for mouthwash at the time. And Listerine desperately wanted to introduce this new product. And instead of marketing the product, instead they marketed this concept. Um, it was called halitosis. And, you know, 
Alex, you've had halitosis at some point in your life. Um, and, and if you're not familiar with this, halitosis is the Latin word meaning it means bad breath. And it was something everyone had been unknowingly dealing with and it was affecting their relationships, it was affecting their work. Um, it could make you incredibly unpopular and it could be cured with mouthwash. All of a sudden the demand for mouthwash skyrocketed, right? And um, everybody was trying to rem remedy this horrendous uh, problem. You know, they wanted to get married. They were gonna go buy some, some mouthwash before the proposal. So let's pretend there were other mouthwash brand brands on, on, the, on the shelves. You know, Listerine certainly created the demand for the mouthwash, but how was their yield? You know, what if someone went to the store and chose another brand instead? If you're the other brand and you're not aware that Listerine is generating all of this demand, you might think you're doing really great marketing and you might start investing more in your newspaper ads or whatever other channel existed. In reality, you're profiting from Listerine and you probably just have a better yield strategy because maybe your product is more attractive on the shelf. Now, if you're Listerine, you might think my sales have gone up great. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm doing a great job, so I'm gonna invest more in my marketing. But maybe, you know, maybe you're splitting the market with other brands because people are going in store and, and picking up the more attractive product. And there's an opportunity to make better investments in making your product stand out on the shelf. So the more information you know about the tactics you execute and you can tie those to the outcomes that are delivered, the better you can adjust your marketing strategy and then build those relationships. Yeah, that's, that's really powerful. And that also speaks to a very important concept that took me a long time to learn, which is context learning business context, learning what's going on beyond what's in front of me, beyond the numbers I'm looking at, what, where does this fit into the situation? And so what, what you're saying is we can, we, we can look at sales and say, here's why we think this is happening. But there's a very big difference between here's why we think this is happening and here's why it's actually happening. And that disconnect makes for the winners and the runner-ups. If you can really know what's working and you can double down, that's what that's what will make you a winner. So um, really powerful uh, story and analogy there. Yeah, I, co I completely agree with you. So you led the innovation marketing team at IBM for a while. What would you say the roadmap to innovative marketing looks like? Yeah, so that's a very interesting question because you know it's very relevant right now, especially in the time that, that we're in. Um, if you look at this past year during COVID, we see how these big disruptions that happen um, can change the course of innovation, innovation or even accelerate innovation. And you can see how marketing has to evolve because of it too. So for example, now that more people have been at home for the past year, the way information um, is consumed has changed drastically. The way people make decisions has changed drastically. Uh, and therefore, the way marketing is done has to also change drastically. You know, um, a lot of it's now online. There are new platforms that have emerged. Things like TikTok um, are now popular. So the future of innovative marketing will be flexible to meet consumers and meet them quickly. And, um, and meeting consumer mean, consumers means meeting them where it's most convenient for them, targeted to the individuals that the um, information is most relevant to, at the time they would most need to see it, and over time, advances in technologies will help us get there.
there have been a lot of new trends and new technologies, especially within marketing, that are really exciting. Um, if you look at some of the evolution of even some of our BI tools and the ways that we surface information to people are now more and more powered by AI technologies. Um, and they're now more usable and accessible to you know, technical and non-technical users. So anyone can go in and build their own dashboarding. Anyone can go in and build their own reporting, leveraging power of things like NLP and um, and, and search to, to get to information faster. Then there's also general technology trends um, that have broader implications than just for marketing. Things like quantum computing has major implications for the future of AI and machine learning, and you can start processing even more information at scale. Um, advances in security technologies, things like fully homomorphic encryption, can help democratize data um, to data scientists while tightening safety and security to people's personal information. So, you know, when you ask about things like the, you know, roadmap to innovative marketing, the fundamental and the core principles of marketing, um, of needing to know your audience and building the relationships, that hasn't changed in the past hundred years. And I don't see that changing in the next hundred years. Innovative marketing relies on our ability to leverage the latest technologies and the information given to us to build relationships with the consumers. I, I like that you took it full circle there. It's all about relationships and understanding your audience. This has been a topic that's come up a lot. It's all about, it's about being a mirror. It's about understanding what you're looking at and reflecting it back into the world. And the companies that can do that the best are the most relatable, almost by definition. And definitely the winners in marketing. Thank you, Valerie. I, I want to thank you again for coming on. This has been a really great discussion. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Alex. And I look forward to coming back sometime. That'd be great. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you soon.